0: Good morning, and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. For those of you who may be regular listeners, I want to uh, share with you uh, something a bit different this morning. As you are aware, um, each week uh, in synagogues throughout the world, um, a particular section of the Sacred Scriptures Torah uh, is read. Each week, a section from one of the five books of the Torah is read, and every year they're read in a consistent order. Now, often it's asked how you can read the same section, parashah, each year and still find meaning within it. And this morning, I'd like to share with you the uh, process of interpretation, how Jews read the Torah portion, and find within it different interpretations, sometimes using the exact same uh, verses as the uh, origin and place of beginning. The parashin, or parashah, that will be read in synagogues this week, and that could be read in this uh, time of year, is known as Truma. It is found in Exodus 25 and runs from Exodus 25 through the middle of Exodus 27. The, in most uh, Orthodox synagogues and conservative synagogues, the entire portion would be read or chanted in Hebrew. In Reform synagogues, there would be a selection of, of the portion read on a rotating basis so that every three years, the entire portion would be covered. In a nutshell, Parashat, uh, the section of Terumah, we find the following. The people are called upon to contribute 13 materials, gold, silver, copper, blue, purple, and red dyed wool, Flax, goat hair, animal skins, wood, olive oil, spices and gems, out of which God said to Moses, these items they shall make for me a sanctuary and I will dwell amidst them. On the summit of Mount Sinai, Moses is given detailed instructions on how to construct this dwelling for God so that it could be readily dismantled, transported, and reassembled as the people journeyed in the desert. In the sanctuary's inner chamber, behind an artistically woven curtain known as a parochet, was the Aron, the Ark, containing the tablets of testimony, engraved with the Ten Commandments. On the Ark's cover stood two-winged cherubim, hammered out of pure gold. In the outer chamber stood the seven-branch menorah, and the table upon which the showbread was arranged, which would eventually become the pulpit, or the altar." The sanctuary's three walls were fitted together from 48 upright wooden boards, each of which was overlaid with gold and held up by a pair of silver foundation sockets. The roof was formed of three layers of coverings, tapestries of multicolored wool and linen, a covering made of goat hair, a covering of ram and tashkash skins, Um, Across the front of the sanctuary was an embroidered screen held up by five posts. Surrounding the sanctuary and the copper plated altar which fronted it was an enclosure of linen hangings supported by 60 wooden posts with silver hooks and trimmings and reinforced by copper stakes. Well, That's just a brief synopsis, and you can hear the specificity to which the Torah devotes itself with regard to the building of the very first tabernacle, or in Hebrew, Mishkan. If you were to read that every year, what would you make of that kind of specificity? So I want to share with you some different perspectives on how the Jewish community learns to read and honor and love Torah. If you care deeply about the present and future state of synagogues and churches, as I do, it is instructive to draw lessons from the remarkable vision of communal worship set forth in this week's Torah portion, Truma. The three aspects of the divine plan for the Israelites' wilderness tabernacle strike me as particularly relevant to our contemporary situation. First, as Jewish commentators have noted for centuries, God does not promise to dwell in the sanctuary that the Israelites will construct, but to dwell, as it says in Hebrew, in them or among them. The point of worship then as now was to enable human beings to sense God's presence in their midst to bring them together around what the European Jewish philosopher Martin Buber called a living center, to raise them above mundane concerns of daily life, to assist them in fusing their days with holiness. One Hebrew word, betocham, gives us a sense that this is not a simple place to offer worship. But this is a locus for God and humanity to find each other. If contemporary worship services do not achieve these ends, if the words do not inspire us, the music does not elevate us, the processions and ceremony do not move us, something is seriously wrong. Like the Israelites of old, we devote enormous resources to building sanctuaries in the hope that we too will feel when we walk through their doors, that we have entered the precepts of the Holy One. Some synagogues and churches of my acquaintance succeed to a remarkable extent in doing these things. It is a joy to be worshiping there, and others do not. Their members or clergy seem reconciled to settling for much less than vitality, and this is sad. Our ancestors worked hard to endure ritual moments in the sanctuary with power, majesty, and holiness, that God's presence become palpable. This should be our objective also. We should work hard to bring God's presence into our sanctuaries. God's promise to dwell in them or among them points to a second key requirement of communal worship, that it take place in a community, a word which I, like the Bible, takes to mean more, far more than an assemblage of individuals. Communities share a common language, practice, and commitment. Their members are not mere consumers of a service, much less an entertainment for which they pay a fee. Rather, they come together for purposes that are central to their lives, give of themselves, bring all they are to the endeavor. The ancient Israelites were free to decide what they would contribute to the building of the tabernacle, but everyone had to bring something, whether offerings such as gold or silver or skills such as weaving, artistry or design. Soon when the tabernacle was completed, they would bring sacrifices of well-being Sacrifices of thanksgiving, sacrifices of atonement, they would pour out their hearts and they would touch their souls. It is, or at least it should be, the same with contemporary synagogues and churches. If members of the synagogue community are joined together in networks of shared activities and relationships, Fully present to one another, the communal whole becomes far more than the sum of the individual parts. The spirit swells. Grief is more easily borne. People accept challenges of service to the larger community that they would never have undertaken otherwise. A third requirement for achieving the sort of sanctuary that is intended in the book of Exodus is found in God's command to do ki kachol, that I show you, is how that's translated. Some translators understood kachol to mean exactly as is. In this reading, God says to Moses that the board should be X cubits long, and Moses makes sure the carpenter saw them to that exact length. Other readers, including yours truly, Take kahol to mean in accordance with God gives the blueprint. The people figure out using God-given skill and creativity and faithful observance to divine directors how to translate the plan into reality. This notion of the building process is consistent with the larger divine human partnership set forth at Sinai. God needs artisans with the skills of Bezalel and prophets such as Moses and Isaiah because the matter of bringing Torah to life is not as simple as sawing boards to a certain length or looking up a particular situation in a divinely revealed instruction manual and doing only what is specified there. God relies upon the creativity, intelligence, and the will of human beings created in God's image. Careful reading of these chapters of Exodus indicates that many necessary details are not supplied. In traditional Jewish terms, the oral law is required to complement and complete the written law. Human initiative is valued by God, who is the source and model of that initiative. You know, nearly 30 years ago, a show in New York featured drawings by master artists such as Michelangelo that were copies of drawings done by other great artists. Inevitably, the copies differed from the originals in significant ways that portrayed, betrayed the particular talent styles and perspectives of their makers. One individual reviewing the show said, How can copying lead to change? Look more closely at the Michelangelo drawing, he wrote. We discover that what had seemed at first a faithful, even dutiful replication, an act of filial piety, is in a certain crucial way not faithful at all to the original. The religious language in this review is striking. And if one follows this unusual rendering of k'chol, then the use of it is utterly mistaken. As we learn in subsequent pages of this review, filial piety does not mean doing exactly as our parents did. Faithfulness in art or performance does not mean copying in detail an earlier work or performance, including one's own. You know, in uh, Al Pacino's movie of um, his portrayal of Shylock in the movie A Merchant of Venice, Shylock is portrayed and often seen as unfaithful to Shakespeare because it differs from one of the great artists of before, Laurence Olivier. When Isaac Stern plays a Beethoven violin concerto one evening, Is it to be judged by its likeness to the performance of the piece he gave the night before, or to some ideal that existed in the head of the composer? Of course, the answer is clear. This artist's show demonstrates with beautiful clarity that every copy, no matter how faithful, produces subtle variations and that it is the readiness to take advantage of these variations created in the act of making, which has been one engine of change in art. The artist or performer does not set out to depart from the original. In fact, he or she feels obligated to make it live in and through their own art, through their own self, their own life. Art is for more than mechanical reproduction. So it is with life. So it is with piety. Tradition means change through continuity, and continuity through change. One aims to conserve to the get the notes right as it was, and by doing so, to serve God, community, and the world. Parashat Truma reminds us that sincere desire to stand before God and one another is required. So is the creation of communities that are far more than assemblages of individual consumers. And we must have artistry, copies made holy and made new by dedication to present and coming near to the source of all creation. The ancient Israelites, who were far from perfect in character, as are we, can inspire us to work at the task of sanctuary building Until we get it right. Now, I hope you understand that I am moved by that kind of interpretation of the text. That from two Hebrew words emerges a perception of what this Torah portion can be all about. It is about building community. It is about following the divine plan, but not sticking so rigidly to it that there is no role for the creative dimension of humanity. Now, I want to offer you another interpretation. This one is uh, not mine. This interpretation uh, comes from. the writings and teachings of the late Lubavitcher Rebbe Menachem Menachem Mendel Schneerson, who had been the chief rabbi of the Lubavitch Hasidim. I hope that this offers you an understanding of how the same Torah portion can lead to a very, very different interpretation. This is based, as I said, on the teachings of the late Lubavitcher Rebbe. So, Rabbi Shneur Zalman writes in the Hasidic classic book Tanya, "This is what man is all about. This is the purpose of his creation and the creation of all worlds, higher and lower, that there be made for God a dwelling in the lower realms." which of course is a quote from our Torah portion, the first such dwelling to be constructed and the one which serves as the prototype for all subsequent efforts to make God at home in the physical world was the Mishkan, the tabernacle in Exodus, the portable sanctuary built by the children of Israel in the Sinai Desert following the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. As already stated, the Torah notes 15 physical substances, including gold, silver, copper, wood, wool, linen, animal skins, oil, spices, gemstones, representing a cross section of the mineral, vegetable and animal resources of the physical universe and the human resources invested in their workmanship were forged into an edifice dedicated to service to God and in which God in turn chose to commune with man. This explains the Torah's uncharacteristically elaborate description of the tabernacle. No less than 13 chapters in the book of Exodus are filled with detail of the sanctuary's construction, from the dimensions of every pillar to the colors of every tapestry. In contrast, the Torah devotes one chapter to its account of creation of the universe and three chapters to the revelation at Mount Sinai and conveys many complex laws by a single verse or even a single word or letter. But if the very purpose of creation is embodied by bracing these rods and foundation sockets, tapestries and furnishings, copper stakes and civil hooks, Then obviously, each and every detail is of supreme importance to those of us who read the text. It is crucial that we know that the menorah had 23 decorative goblets hammered into its design, and that each of the sanctuary tabernacle's 48 wall panels measured 10 cubits in length and 15 cubits in width. And it's necessary to define, as the later rabbis do, the 39 forms of creative work, from plowing to weaving to lighting to writing involved in the sanctuary's construction. For here, writes the Lubavitcher Rabbi, lies the prototype for our life's work of making our world and our lives a home for God. The Rebbe continues, the Midrash and the biblical commentaries, and particularly the mystical and Hasidic expounders of Torah, elaborate on this theme, describing this tabernacle as a model of man, of the physical universe, and of creation as a whole. The Mishkan's furnishings, or vessels as they're called in the Torah, for example, are seen as representations of the various organs and faculties of man. The Aron HaKodesh, the Ark containing the Torah, corresponds to the mind, the intellect, and the faculty of speech. The menorah, the seven branches to the eyes and the sense of sight, the tabernacle that held the showbread to the sense of taste, The inner altar on which the incense was burned to the sense of smell, the outer altar in which animal and meal offerings were brought, represent the digestive system and other functional organs. In one of the notebook manuscripts discovered after the death of the recent Lubavitcher Rebbe, we discover his writings about how the three primary domains of the Mishkan parallel corresponding divisions in creation and time and in the communal soul of Israel. Now, let me be clear before you're too confused that the Hasidim, of course, are one of the more mystical traditions of Jewish life. And that my intent, again, in sharing these words with you is to show how one Torah portion can offer us such different entrees into understanding God's intentionality for us as partners in the creation of the world. Let me continue. Maimonides, the 11th century uh, Egyptian-Spanish philosopher, Describes the universe as consisting of three strata, unrefined matter, the earth and all its terrestrial creatures, refined matter, the stars and heavenly body and holy spiritual beings, entities that are forms alone and without matter, such as angels, which are not physical bodies. Maimonides was a Neoplatonic Aristotelian philosopher as well as a great commentator on the Torah. Extending this division to the realm of time, he says, we have six work days, unrefined matter, Shabbat one day, refined matter, and the Sabbath of Sabbaths, Yom Kippur, in which we graduate to a state of consummate spirituality. Among the souls, we have the Israelites whose lives are dedicated on the whole to the busyness of material life. The tribe of Levi, whose service in the Holy Temple involved the refinement and elevation of the material world. And the Kohen Gadol, high priest, who personified the acme of spirituality attainable by man. Notice each of these understandings is in threes. The Rebbe continues, in the Mishkan, these three domains are represented by the courtyard, the outer chamber of the sanctuary, and the Holy of Holies, the inner chamber, behind the parochet, behind the curtain. The courtyard embraced all the more earthly and coarse elements of the temple service. Here the Kohanim washed their hands and feet to cleanse themselves from their contact with the material world before beginning their service or entering the Mishkan proper. Here the fat of the korbanot animal sacrifices representing the excess materiality in the life of man was burned upon the altar. Here were deposited the ashes that constituted the waste from the menorah and the inner altar. Here were the slaughtered korbanot including those whose meat was eaten by ordinary Israelites. The holy into which only the Kohanim were permitted entry was the scene of the more refined elements of the temple service. The lighting of the menorah, the burning of the incense and the displaying on the table, the showbread eaten by the Kohanim on Shabbat. And finally, the holy of holies, which housed only the ark and into which only the Kohen Gadol was permitted entry and only on Yom Kippur, represented the utter transcendence of material and man's service to God. The Mishkan included these three domains because the task of making God a dwelling in the lower realms embraces all these areas of life. The Jew serves God in his or her most exalted moments. We also serve God in our effort to elevate and refine our world, and we also strive to make God at home within the most ordinary activities. Of everyday life. Who would have thought that reading the meticulous details about the construction of the tabernacle would have led us to such a spiritual understanding of the realms in which we live, and the realms in which we live intersect with God. One other note. Nachmanides, a contemporary of Maimonides, writes, the essence of the dwelling for God is its spiritual core. He writes, the main object of the sanctuary is to serve as the resting place of the Divine Presence. This is realized in the Aron HaKodesh, as God says, I will commune with you, speaking to you from above the Kaporit, from above the cover. This is why the Torah begins its description of the Mishkan with the Ark and the Kaporit. Maimonides, on the other hand, defines the sanctuary as a house of for God that is designed for the offering of sacrifices. Maimonides is saying that the outer altar in the courtyard is the focal point of the sanctuary, the axis around which everything else revolves. In other words, there are two possible ways in which to define the concept of physical space and structure that serve as a dwelling for God, a place where and through which God chooses to reveal him or herself, to man, and a place where and through which God, man serves God. You know, each and every year we come to this Torah portion, and sometimes I am struck by the meticulous nature of the discussion of uh, the building. And some years I'm struck by how elaborately God intended for us to celebrate God's presence. And some years, some years I read the commentators and I think, this is not about building at all. This is not about the edifice. It's about the community that we create. It's about the soul, which we open up to God's presence so that God might live betocham, within us, within each and every person who offers their lives to a faithful covenant with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is Rabbi Stephen Garten for Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts wishing you a good morning and a nice day. Shalom.